I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. I'm delighted to welcome author, historian, Claire Potter. She is professor. She is the executive editor of Public Seminar, teaches at the New School for Social Research, and author of the new book, Political Junkies, From Talk Radio to Twitter, How Alternative Media Hooked Us on Politics and Broke Our Democracy. It's so, so great to have you on. Thank you, Claire. Thanks for asking me, Alexander. What is the central thesis uh, of the book? It's implied in the title, but I wanted to give you a chance to tell our listeners. So the thesis of the book, Alexander, is that alternative media arose as a way for people on the margins to tell their story in the way they wanted to tell it. Um, and that alternative media was originally a place for free speech to flourish um, and to actually create reforms in the mainstream media. And that what ultimately happened um, from all that desire for freedom and creativity is that alternative media ended up being hijacked by people who used it to divide us into partisan warring camps. Um, and that, in fact, the situation we're in today is in part driven by alternative media. Now, how do you define alternative media? Because some folks would say in the, in the realm of social media, which you describe hijack the discourse, that really is the monopoly of media and isn't so alternative in the traditional way we might think of alternative. Right. So I define alternative media as anti-establishment media. Um, and I think that's a very important definition because as we know, certain kinds of alternative media are extraordinarily profitable. Um, one of the most valuable media properties around, for example, is the Drudge Report. Um, but it's still alternative media because it actually writes against a political establishment and a media establishment. So Defining it by its anti-establishment properties allows us to look at alternative media in, at, across the political spectrum, um, from uh, I.F. Stone, whose I.F. Stone's Weekly became a sort of gem of journalism in the 1950s, to the sort of liberal um, PBS NewsHour, otherwise born as the McNeil-Lara Report, to right-wing media like Richard Vigory's mailing list, the Drudge Report, Breitbart, and so on and so forth. So it's, it's media that opposes an establishment position. When we think, though, of this Trump era and, and the period of a post-truth society, a gas-lit society, um, that is particularly pernicious in misinforming and disinforming the electorate. And the, the Drudge Report, you know, relative to the kinds of handles that have dominated Twitter and the kinds of articles that are most shared on Facebook every day now for months, you know, the Drudge is distinct from those in that, you know, Drudge really is relying on newsworthy sources that are in covering the pandemic. Um, pretty factually with a basis in reality, whereas the kinds of alternative media that were born with a hateful extremist agenda to push 
anti-vaccination, for example, or to push any number of the conspiracy theories, or now to push the agenda of Bill Barr's goons and a war on citizens in federal takeovers of municipal police departments. I mean, those are those pages on Facebook in particular, but Twitter and some of the channels that had been uh, marginalized in an earlier era of the web that are now so virally shared. So when you talk about destroying the fabric of civil society, there is a distinction you might draw now between something like Drudge and something like um, Alex Jones or, or similar pages that, that have become so viral on social platforms, right? Or no? Absolutely. I think we, we do have to draw a distinction between them. But one of the ways in which they're similar is that they are using the internet for a kind of democratic, cheap distribution that allows them to get to a mass audience. And one of the things we have to remember is that in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, the mass audience was pretty much monopolized by major news outlets and by broadcasting, um, whether radio broadcasting or television broadcasting. When you get to the internet, you create the possibility for um, culture makers and newsmakers to create their own channels. And there's nothing, you know, the internet is ideologically neutral. Um, it will carry anything uh, to anybody. And so, so the idea of alternative media actually remains the same over time in that it is anti-establishment, but it changes radically over time because of the means of distribution. Um, however, I would also say that looking at uh, conspiracists like Alex Jones, um, those people have always been present in alternative media. So that in the 1950s, you have someone like Dean Clarence Mannion, um, and even before him, Father Coughlin, um, the famous anti-Semite. Um, and so conservatives actually used radio very, very broadly to pipe conspiracy theories of various kinds to their audiences. Um, Rush Limbaugh picks up that mantle in the 1990s. Um, and then people like Alex Jones take it to the internet. Um, now, it's also the case that there is another kind of alternative media that I explore, which are bulletin board style platforms, um, starting with the original BBSs, but um, today we know them as, say, Reddit or 8chan or 4chan. Um, and these two are ways of piping conspiracy theories to a mass audience. Um, so you have some that are accurate, some that aren't accurate, but I think the thing that they have in common is that the medium itself doesn't decide. It's the person who masters the medium that decides what goes out over it. And these people are not being edited by anybody. So it, you know, right. right. And I would submit to you, Claire, that, that there are certain outlets that are, in the words of your book, breaking democracy right now, yep. with particular intent to specifically disinform, misinform electorate, um, an electorate in America. If you agree with that contention, would you say that this is not an equal opportunity or problem and it's not helpful to make a false equivalency between the liberal alternative media and the conservative alternative media that are, that are quote unquote, breaking democracy. Let's be very explicit. 
who and what are breaking democracy right now? Well, I think there are, there are sort of two things to look at. One is major platforms that are edited. Um, for example, if you look at a platform like Jacobin, um, which is on the one hand in the tradition of the New York little magazines, um, but is also a form of alternative media um, because they have a robust web presence. Um, Jacobin actually prints a lot of things that just aren't true. And ideologically, they feel true in many cases, but you don't have to look at some of these stories too carefully. Um, if you look at, for example, the way the accusations that Tara Reid made about Joe Biden came out, um, that is a typical role that alternative media plays, which is you get a story on an alternative media platform. In this case, it was Katie Halper, and then it moved very quickly to The Intercept. Um, and then mainstream, um, mainstream institutions are forced to cover it because it's out there, right? So, so I do actually think that alternative on the media, uh, alternative media on the left does do some damage in the sense that it has an interest in aggregating an audience and keeping that audience. And it's not going to keep that audience if it actually becomes a platform for heterodox debates. That's interesting. Would you include Glenn Greenwald and, and company and, and some of the, um, the efforts to legitimize um, a um, pro-disinformation or pro-Russia narrative, The Intercept, uh, other groups that were trying to foment discord in the, in the form of, of um, third-party candidacies that would, in effect, um, and did void um, a lot of the energy for Secretary Clinton in 2016 and, and could very well have the potential to do damage to Joe Biden in 2020. Yes, I, I would. And I want to um, say parenthetically, first of all, I have all the admiration for Glenn Greenwald in the world. If he did nothing else but get the Snowden story out, he should be in the Journalism Hall of Fame forever. Um, but that being said, um, I do think that the constant pushing of conspiracy, the constant pushing of criticisms that often go well beyond the factual, um, does do damage to politics because actually democratic politics is about creating consensus. It's not about creating division. And while it is useful for a democracy to have at least two parties that have very clearly defined differences in how they approach political problems, it is not useful for those democracies to have both parties um, sort of inculcating the people who belong to them with the idea that the quote-unquote other side um, can't be trusted and never tells the truth. And so I think there are alternative media platforms on both the left and the right that are deeply engaged in that project. For some, like The Intercept, it is in fact an ideological position um, that it is forwarding. For others, like the, all of the conversation shows on MSNBC, I'm a little more cynical about it. I think it's about aggregating an audience and keeping that audience happy. So breaking our democracy, you know, is, is something that we need to correct. And, and part of it is media and part of it is the electoral process. So how much 
influence does each have at this particular juncture? I mean, I, I would imagine you believe that this election result is pretty pivotal in determining the, tra the trajectory of both the future of media and the future of politics. Yes, I do think, I do think it's pivotal. And I would also say that I think we are at a place in our political life that I never really thought we would be when I started writing this book. You know, I, I began writing this book in the aftermath of Donald Trump winning the election. Um, and we all knew that the Trump campaign was pushing a new kind of disinformation as part of its efforts to win the presidency. Um, what we did not know is the extent to which the Trump campaign was literally creating an alternative reality, drawing on a variety of conspiracy theories and prejudices of its base um, and consolidating that as another America. Um, and I think how the mainstream media has responded to this is extraordinarily interesting. Um, initially, the mainstream media responded to it by disbelief. Um, and I think one of, the, one of the criticisms of the last campaign season was that the mainstream media kept pushing the Trump campaign back into the news over and over and over again for these sometimes obscene, sometimes um, simply ridiculous things that were coming out of it. Um, and that Hillary Clinton simply got a lot less coverage, you know, as the mainstream media was gobsmacked um, by something they'd never seen before. Um, they made the turn, um, and we've seen things happen in the last four years that we never expected, like that media outlets simply call the president a liar. Um, that's unprecedented. Now, I would like to say, in a way, they get that from alternative media, right? Because one of the ways we begin to see the mainstream media consensus being pushed back on is by that generation of bloggers that emerges around the, the turn of the 21st century. Um, and they are basically dedicated amateurs who work on stories, dig very deeply into them, research them, uh, much like Izzy Stone did. And they keep pushing those stories back into the news. Um, so eventually, um, the mainstream media has learned to respond to an unprecedented situation more like alternative media does, which is to occasionally just say that's not true, um, or the president's a liar, or this looks like a crime to me. Um, and that, of course, is something that went on in blogging first. So Claire, you would perhaps disagree at least partially with Jay Rosen in, in that um, his assertion continues to be um, we are ill-prepared and have not converted to the right approach in covering this uniquely anti-democratic um, and anti-intellectual administration, anti-intelligent, uh, anti-factual. Um, you seem to be more um, of the mind that, that reforming the press has made some inroads in adequately responding to the crisis at hand. And I know Jay 
still probably would say we're, we're, we're not near the point that we need to be. Well, I think we're not near the point that we need to be too. Um, that being said, one of the things we're hampered by, of course, is what has happened to journalism, um, mainstream journalism over the last 20 years, um, which is that it, you know, its corporate model um, basically collapsed on a certain level, um, and in part because of pressure from alternative media. Uh, so that to the extent that a much smaller number of reporters are doing political coverage now, a much smaller number of editors are available to edit that coverage, um, the kinds of conversations and effort that went into an investigation back, say, during Watergate, um, it's simply not possible with the kind of staffing, even a, um, an outlet as big as the Washington Post or the New York Times um, does. So, so I think that is a structural problem that alternative media really doesn't face because alternative media has always worked off of casual and unpaid labor. <laughs> you know, and when a platform becomes really um, successful, like Breitbart did, um, it also draws a lot of investors. I mean, really, I think the only thing that's keeping Breitbart afloat now um, is the Mercers, um, because they've lost over 70% of their readership since 2017. Um, so, so I think alternative media often looks for alternative sources of funding. Um, certainly conservative alternative media has never been profit-making, with you know, perhaps the exception of the Rush Limbaugh show, um, even Fox News. Uh, doesn't make much of a profit outside of the cable fees that we all pay, right? Because they, they have very little advertising revenue. Um, so I think right-wing media in particular has benefited from the interests of large numbers of right-wing donors in a way that left-wing media generally has not. What's your attitude, Claire, about covering the press conferences at this juncture? It, it's It's been speculated that Trump may resume some of his coronavirus briefings. And again, this is, I mean, this, this makes wag the dog look like just a kind of the most honest version of events you could possibly fathom. You know, we, we know that the crisis is, appears almost insurmountable when it comes to the pandemic and the virus raging around the country because of the culpability and negligence of this administration and scientific illiteracy and and you know just the narcissistic uh, attitude towards uh everything um that trump touches but um now that we're told that these briefings may resume initially they were covered live on the major networks and cable outfits um if they were to resume <laughs> i mean it would just be the greatest act of television comedy or fiction, you know, just sort of a dystopian, um, a, a sort of dystopian entertainment um, to know that here he is doing these briefings after 200,000 people have died. Um, we're, we're counting towards that number. And so it's like this, this paradox of, of the, the theater of the absurd doesn't even capture it. How do you deal with that problem? Well, I think one of the ways you deal with that problem is to actually do what CNN has been doing, which is you have a running Chiron 
that actually says what's true. And they've been doing that every once in a while. And I think it's very powerful. I am of mixed mind about not covering the president. I don't think any of us actually learn anything when we watch the president. Um, I don't even think people who like the president learn anything when they watch the president. Um, and I do think that he seems to be um, in, a, in a state of um, collapse on a certain level. He's more incoherent than he has ever been. He's more bombastic than he's ever been. His lies are more outrageous than they have ever been. Um, and I think to the extent that actually putting him on the air might actually capture for some of those voters who we want to vote for Joe Biden, this man is falling apart. Um, and if, if you vote for him, you are voting for chaos for another four years, which I don't think even, I don't think many of those people who voted for Trump believed that they were voting for chaos. I don't know what they thought they were voting right, for. Right, right. Well said. They didn't well, believe that. Yeah. <laughs> right? and, and I mean, there, there was definitely a constituency of voters who felt that he was going to govern like the Barnacle Act, that it was, uh, that he was campaigning that way, but that the governing would be different. There would be uh, a, a different tone. And, and, and I mean, as we're recording this, there is one particular network that is making the story and it's being subtweeted on Twitter um, that the tone, the president's tone is changing. And to Jay Rosen's very astute and consistent commentary critique, I should say, that's still going on. And, and like he says, it is, it is hackish and ludicrous and, you know, but, but, we, we can't be gullible to believe that there aren't some mainstream news reporters and alternative media reporters who will still buy into that idea of a change of tone just because he's holding briefings again after 150,000 people have died. And so yes. that's still part of the culture. And, and you know, we can, we can go back to, to Neil Postman or, or Richard Hofstadter, or, you know, pick your poison, but that's always part of America. Um, and that's why I ask you how you deal with that situation. Right. Well, I think, you know, one of the things that you learn if you look at a long sweep of media history like I did in Political Junkies is that it has been a constant source of debate within the news media establishment how close reporters and editors are to politicians. Right. And, you know, one of the one of the ways Izzy Stone sold his newsletter um, was he said to people, all governments lie. I will never lie to you. And I am a person who does not get inside information. And by that, what he meant was the kind of tips that people frequently got from presidents, from the people surrounding presidents and so on. It was kind of a quid pro quo. It's like, we will give you information that no other reporter has. And in exchange for that, you're not going to tell people that John F. Kennedy has sex with, you know, the people in the steno pool in in the White House, right? Um, and that's that's sort of an exaggerated example, but there, were, there was a tacit deal, you know, and that deal really kind of broke around the Gary Hart campaign in 1988, um, but it still held together through the Clinton years until Matt Drudge stepped up and said, look, here's a story, it's been vetted, it's true, and I'm gonna publish it because Newsweek won't. So there are all of these moments through media history when reporters themselves are deeply and profoundly troubled by what they are and are not allowed to put into print because in fact the media establishment is so wedded and, to the political establishment. And, we, and this has been a fascinating and 
insightful um, to, to hear your perspective. Um, I urge everybody to check out Political Junkies, Claire's latest book. We'll see, Claire, if Matt Drudge has an opportunity to redeem himself because he, he does have impeccable news instincts and his coverage of the pandemic has been unflinching and, and I would say unflinchingly objective and has, has, and even before the pandemic, he was kind of deviating from, from Trump and Trumpism in his coverage. Um, but it, it will be interesting. <laughs> he might have an opportunity to redeem himself for a fact-based future. Um, and and we, we shall see, right? We shall see. We shall see. We shall see. And Matt is nothing if not independent. He's right. always been that. Exactly. Thank you so much, Claire Potter. <laughs> Thank you, Alexander. It's been a pleasure talking to you.